What a great way to praise our triune God together in song, and now it's our desire to do that in Scripture. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In a few moments, we'll be reading verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It is a joy to be back with you after a week of vacation and to conclude this, our series on the study of our triune God. It's been a good six weeks. And as we come to the end of this, we need to acknowledge that we've invested a lot of time and mental energy on what many perceive to be a difficult doctrine. And at the end of the day, we really need to ask ourselves, has it been worth it? Did it really need six weeks? <laughs> Does it really matter? I know, I know that like, if you, you have to say yes. <laughs> There's just no... No other Christian answer. Yeah, yes, of course, it, it matters. But I want to provoke your thinking for a moment. Um, not everyone would answer yes. Not everyone thinks that this is a very relevant issue. Extremely intelligent men would land on both sides of that question. On the one hand, you would have the famous philosopher and critic Immanuel Kant, a brilliant mind, brilliant thinker, not a Christian by any means, but a man who actually tried to think deeply about the Trinity. Ultimately, he said that it was too complex of a thing to grasp and we just need to give up on it, and these were his final words after dedicating all his scholastic ability to the doctrine. He concludes, the doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, has... No practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand it. And it's even more clearly irrelevant if we realize that it transcends all of our concepts. Now, you notice that I emphasized those words, no practical relevance at all. That wasn't my emphasis, that was his emphasis in his original writings. He put that in italics. But on the other hand, you would have a man like uh, Fred Sanders. You've probably never heard his name before, but uh, Sanders is an evangelical, a guy that believes the gospel, believes the Bible. And you know what he does for a job? Like his entire job has been to study the Trinity. He's a Trinitarian theologian. That's all he does is write books on the Trinity and teach about the Trinity. And so he comes to a different conclusion. Listen to his, and, and be careful, because I, I mean, keep in mind, he gets paid to do this, so he could easily overstate his case, right? But here's his conclusion. Nothing we do as evangelicals makes sense if it is divorced from a strong experiential and doctrinal grasp of the coordinated work of Jesus and the Spirit worked out against the horizon of the Father's love. Okay, so now we've got, we've got the far ends here. You've got Kant, you've got Sanders, but, you know, we like... And all, another option, right? Like maybe there's an in-between. Maybe we should just moderate this a little bit. We don't need to be as fanatical as Sanders. And at the same time, 
I mean, we know that, that, that Kant obviously seems way off base. So maybe there's just some brackish water. Maybe there's, um, you know, uh, you know, Trinity's important, but it's not all that important. It's, it's medium. That would be our third option. Before you actually try to answer the question, and before you even defend it with anything, I, I actually want to play devil's advocate for a moment. I, I actually want us to consider only temporarily, don't worry, I'm going to give you the biblical perspective, but consider Kant's argument that there's no practical relevance to this at all. And I'll do it with a little thought experiment. I'm going to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity for you. We've, we've looked at it several weeks already, but for those of you who haven't been here, I'm just going to read a few lines from John Owen's work on the Trinity, and it's probably one of the best doctrinal summaries of the Trinity out there. Now, as I read this to you, I want you to be thinking about the practical, everyday, real-world needs that you're facing even this week. And I want you to tell me how much of what you're about to hear from Owen really has an impact on what you're dealing with right now. Ready? God is one. This one God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Father is the Father of the Son, and the Son, the Son of the Father, and the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Father and the Son. In respect of this, their mutual relations, they are distinct from one another. Period. The end. That helping anybody out? You feeling ready for the week now? I mean, how does this... How does this impact the start of a new school year? How does it relieve your stressful projects at work? How does it heal those broken relationships that you're dealing with in your life right now? How does it help you dig out of your most recent financial crisis? Or how does it assist you in your incessant health challenges? How does it abate your sleepless nights? Please tell me. That's what Kant would say. And that's why I say that Kant may be onto something. Maybe Sanders has overplayed his hand. Maybe we need to be in the middle ground. I mean, really. Nothing we do makes sense apart from a strong experiential and doctrinal grasp of the Trinity. Really? Nothing? From one angle, it seems, I mean, it doesn't seem as if much changes if we commit to live in light of the Trinity. It's like, I don't see the impact. Yet, God's recorded word, forget Sanders for a moment, forget Kant, let's just think about God's word for a moment, it assumes something drastically different. Considerations of the triune God are closely connected to some of the most real needs in all of the scriptures. Now, just look at the New Testament generally. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, one comes from the disciples' plight in John 13 through 17. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in church or in Sunday school, in that particular section of John, Jesus, who has been with the disciples for the last three years, is saying that I am going away. They never thought this. They thought that he was just going to rule and reign forever. <laughs> And now he's making explicitly clear that he's about to die and go away. And literally, they will not see him. He's going to heaven. He'll come back, but he's going away. And do you know what Jesus does in John 13 through 17? He actually spends the time in their most crisis hour unpacking the doctrine of the triune relationship that they have with God. 
One of my favorite writers, theologians, teachers, Sinclair Ferguson remarked, when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. (laughs) But it's not just Jesus or John's record of what Jesus taught. Even Peter, we don't have time to get into it, but even Peter, impetuous, boastful, arrogant, immensely practical Peter, found the doctrine of the Trinity to be something immensely practical. In his letter in 1 Peter, and you'll see this in verses 1 through 3, don't turn there, you can write it down. Before he gets into the meat of his commands, he's writing to a group of people who have been shell-shocked. They have been literally exiled from Jerusalem due to persecution. They fled their homes, and in this letter, he's going to give them 30 different commands and instructions. I mean, if somebody forced you out of your house this week, and you were on the run on account of your faith, I think you would be looking for some instructions. And the Apostle Peter, before he ever even gets to hello, before he even says hi, he unpacks in three sentences the doctrine of the Trinity. He grounds his entire letter on this relationship that they have with the triune God. John, Jesus, Peter, and then Paul. The practicality of the Trinity is also seen throughout the Apostle Paul's writings. You could expect him at some point to refer to the triune God in some um, section of a letter that was buried in systematic theology. For those of you who have been around church a while, if you've ever seen a systematic theology book, they're typically about this thick, and nobody really wants to read it. (laughs) It's kind of like a dictionary. I mean, who reads the dictionary? You would think that if Paul was going to address the doctrine of the, the Trinity, it would be in his volume of systematic theology. And yet Paul will bring this doctrine up in the context of the misuse of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. He will appeal to it again as he imparts blessings upon his readers in 2 Corinthians 13 to close a letter. And then he'll do it again in Ephesians chapter 4 to appeal for unity in the local church. And by the way, if you don't think that's a real world issue, real, real world issue, just get at somebody's throat in the church. It will ruin your world. <laughs> and yet it's the Trinity that he thinks will bail them out. Speaking of Ephesians, it's not just the New Testament generally that affirms the practicality of the Trinity, but the epistle to the Ephesians does this specifically. It's like a vein of gold hidden in a mountain. The practicality of the Trinity is especially concentrated in this letter. Paul's subject here that he's addressing demands a thorough understanding of our triune God as he expands upon the richness of our reconciliation with Christ how it happened, what it means. And for Paul, you cannot appreciate or apprehend the benefits of being reconciled to Jesus apart from your understanding of the triune God. Thus, all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned together, listen to this, in every chapter of the book. One, two, three, four, five, and six, you'll find it. It's a big deal to him, especially here. So the challenge this morning, friends, will not be finding ways to live in light of the Trinity. My challenge as a preacher with a limited amount of time is to limit the applications of God's triune nature into what can be covered in the remainder of our time together. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to narrow the focus of our study to one sentence. One sentence. But I'm going to use one sentence in the Greek. Not one sentence in the English. 
And that one sentence, friends, goes all the way from chapter 1, verse 3, to verse 14. (laughs) It may be several sentences in the English, but it is a long, drawn-out, convoluted sentence. Now, to be fair, I I will not do a full-blown exposition of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I will save that for a time where I preach through the book of Ephesians. But I do want you to notice how Paul is explicitly clear about drawing out the implications of our triune relationship to God. Listen for it as we read verses 3 to 14, and then I'll talk about how the sermon's organized. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's a long sentence, friends. (laughs) And yet Paul, once he started trying to reflect on his praise to God, just couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. And notice that in this sporadic and yet spirit-inspired, detailing of praise to God for the relationship that he enjoys in Jesus Christ. He covers all three members of the Trinity. And so here's how we're going to examine the practicality of the Trinity this morning. This final message on the Trinity will fall neatly into two halves. There will be a doctrinal and a practical half. The the doctrinal will be this, how our triune God relates to us. That's what Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is all about. How our triune God relates to us. And here's where the rubber meets the road. The second half, the practical, how we relate then to our triune God. Is that pretty logical, pretty simple? You follow that? How our God relates to us, how we relate to our triune God. Let's look at how our God relates to us. This is this long sentence, and in it we see that our relationship with the triune God comes from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. I'll say that again. Our relationship with the triune God comes from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Do you see it? From the Father. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who's he talking about here? We were doing basic Bible study. Who is being referred to here? Who's the subject? 
It's the Father. The Father. He's the one that's being addressed. Now, while there's one divine will shared by all three persons of the Trinity, the Father is portrayed as the person of the Trinity primarily responsible for determination and administration. In this case, Paul gives the Father glory for his determination to bless his chosen people. Now, I need to say that when we use the word bless, it just seems so generic, so vanilla, so bland. Blessings, yes, of course. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What blessings? And typically we just think of any good thing that's ever happened to us, but Paul has something more specific in mind here. Blessings in this context are what theologians would call expressions of special grace as opposed to common grace. They're special blessings as opposed to common blessings. Common grace or common blessings consist of blessings that all the created order share in this life, saved or unsaved. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you also enjoy God's common grace, his common blessings. And we think of those things all the time, particularly at Thanksgiving. We thank God for creating the world, and we thank God for the turkey, and we thank God for the food that we enjoy, and our friends, and our family, and our relationships, and football, and whatever it else is we're into. No, I'm not denying that all those things are expressions of God's kindness. Have you ever thought about the fact, someone pointed this out to me the other day, that in God, God in creating us did not have to create taste buds. <laughs> he could have just made it so that we eat food. Yet he's enabled us to enjoy certain things. And the unsafe per- person enjoys a chocolate cake just as much as I do. God's being just as kind to them as he is to me in that regard. But I want you to know that here, Paul's not talking about common blessings. Those things have a shelf life. They have an expiration date. They last in this life only. Paul here is talking about heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings, eternal blessings, that which does not expire, that which is reserved for God's special chosen people. He defines them here. I'm not going to read through the entire text again, but he's going to point out that these spiritual blessings are things like election and redemption and adoption and propitiation and reconciliation. And if you don't know what those words mean, I would encourage you to come to our Fundamentals of the Faith seminar in a couple weeks. Shameless plug for something we do here at this church. These spiritual blessings outshine and outlast the temporal blessings. And friends, This is where, let's be really practical here for a moment, this is where the opening question comes back to us in full relevance because when you answer a question like, what's important, what matters, is it practical? You have to ask the question, practical for what? (laughs) What are your needs? What is it that we have to have? See, before you start talking about how relevant the doctrine of the Trinity is, you, you, you have to define relevance. What is important? See, here, these spiritual blessings are so important because they're eternal. I mean, let me just give you an analogy. What good is a steak dinner on death row if you're an enemy of the state? It, it could be from Ruth's Chris. But if I know that, it, that that's my last meal and I'm about to receive the needle on my arm and life is about to be extinguished, I don't care. I don't care how good it tastes. On the other hand, who cares if you don't eat steak tonight if you know you could enjoy it for eternity as the beloved of the Almighty God? Do you see the difference? 
want to get back to the point of the text here, but I just want to be clear when he's talking about the Father arranging blessings for us. These are the blessings that he has in mind. Where did these spiritual blessings, this special relationship with God, where did it come from? It came from the Father's planning, determination, administration, whatever you want to call it. It was from the Father. Note that the Father, notice role here, I'm going to highlight some things, and I'm just reading the text. Verses 4 through 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he's talking about the Father, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, talking about the Father, us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, talking about the Father's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he, that's the Father, has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, for those of you who come from theological backgrounds in which that language would seem very uncomfortable, I want you to know that I'm not going to unpack the doctrine of election today, but we want to stick to the topic and to the text. And let's just say, friends, I will point this out and move on. The text does say that. He did it. But more importantly, what I want you to see, the he that arranged it all, no matter what you think of man's involvement in the whole process, is from the Father. He's the one that arranged it. It came from him. So in looking at the triune God's relationship with us, we see that it came from the Father. But he's not the only member of the Trinity to play a special role in this relationship. The verses continue. Verses 5 through 12 reveal that this relationship was extended through the Son. Through the Son. You see it in these verses. We already read verses 5 through 12, but listen to as I read verses 5 through 7, and I want to see if you can pick up on why I could say this. In love, those two words actually belong to verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And he goes on to describe that grace. Who's he talking about here? Subject, Jesus, God the Son. (laughs) So God the Father was involved, God the Son was involved, and here's the significance that the Father planned the relationship, but someone would need to actually provide it. Now, uh, friends, I hope that you won't mind me at all taking a moment to rehearse the glorious truths of the gospel because after all that's kind of what we gather to do but this is where you're going to see why the gospel that we preach and proclaim so regularly here matters so much because it's one thing to have a plan (laughs) it's something else to carry out the plan the father had a great plan but someone had to provide for the plan now i want to present the problem for you theologically and then i'm going to present solutions now don't worry for those of you who long to write down practical things for your to-do list we will get to that i told you doctrinal then practical hang with me this is one of the most important things i'll say this morning there is a problem the problem is this a righteous god cannot wink at transgression think about that for a moment if he's righteous he cannot wink at transgression otherwise he would not be righteous good judges enforce they don't overlook the law i could extend that analogy but i think it says enough And this is bad news for us, though, because God's wrath and judgment rested upon all who were in sin. And when Adam, our forefather, sinned, he introduced sin 
like an eternally devastating genetic disorder to us all, and therefore we all sin, and therefore we are all on the outs with God natively. So to cure us of this disease and to free us from this divine penalty of wrath, someone would need to right the wrong on our behalf. Someone would need to live the righteous life that we failed to live. Someone would need to pay the penalty that we deserved for our transgression. Someone would need to ensure this justice from God. Now, for the Father's plan to work, hang with me, for the Father's plan to work, this someone would have to be fully human to represent us as human beings, and at the same time, this someone would have to be fully God to ensure the sacrifice would be worthy of satisfying the eternal justice of God. So for the plan to come out, there's a lot that's got to come together, and here's the solution. The eternal God of the same essence of God, the eternal Son, willingly took on human flesh. He entered fully into the human experience to satisfy God's wrath and secure righteousness for those for whom the Father planned to bless with an eternal relationship from all eternity. And this righteous life, this satisfactory death on the cross was secured by Jesus Christ. He accomplished, secured our salvation and redemption. He is the one by whom this is provided or through whom this is provided. It is from the Father. It is through the Son. That's why he says in verse 5, it happens through Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 6, in him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There is no reconciliation to the Father apart from the mediating work of the Son. Does that make sense? Now, you're seeing the pattern of the relationship, but I want you to know that we're not full circle yet because it's one thing to have a plan and it's another thing to have some provision, but at some point it's got to be applied. Like at what point do we get in on that? That's what God did. But how do we get in on that? Well, here's the third way in which God relates to us, the final link in the chain, if you will. It's by the Spirit. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That's how the relationship works. Look at verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Who's he talking about now? The Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? Notice he says the promised Holy Spirit. For anyone who was familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, they knew what the Holy Spirit had come to do because the people themselves can never fulfill the righteous law of God. And he promised back in Ezekiel that he would send someone to give them a new heart. This was the Spirit. Not everyone had access to this ministry. Philip Graham Ryken actually summarizes this very well for us. I'll just read a few lines for you. First, here's how the Spirit connects us to this. The Holy Spirit enables us to hear the gospel truth, which is the message of salvation. Then he changes us from the inside out, the gracious act known as regeneration. Third, with regeneration comes the gift of faith, the spiritual ability to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. And fourth, by doing this work in us, the Holy Spirit makes our salvation a present reality. He takes the salvation for the Son that the Son accomplished in the past and applies it to us in the present. Therefore, it says that the Holy Spirit is for us a seal and a down payment. Now, those are two words that we don't use very often. If I were to ask one of my children, uh, what, do, what is a seal? They would probably think of the animal. 
Uh, folks, that is not what he's talking about. Seal here is that which signified or marked someone's ownership of something, particularly a letter. So just think back to the olden days of melted wax and candles. <laughs> they would take that wax and they would burn it onto some letterhead and then some person would have a metal insignia or crest or stamp and they would impress it upon the soft wax, thereby marking their identification of something. Here it says that you've been marked, you've been impacted, you've come into contact with this salvation when the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you. This is when the rubber meets the road, if you will. This is when you're marked as in Christ. This is why it's called the guarantee of our inheritance. I like the word guarantee. Another way you could translate it is down payment. Uh, I think of, I was just at a wedding this past weekend, and you, know, you see these pictures of this happy couple, and they're engaged, and then they get married. You know, what is it that kicks off the whole process? It is that moment when that guy gets down on a knee, preferably. I'm old school, I know. But preferably gets down on one knee and gives a ring to that girl. What is he doing in that? He's saying, all right. Here's a few thousand dollars worth of my intentions (laughs) to finish this relationship, to take it to the end. It's a down payment. It's a guarantee. More impersonally, you do the same with a house. What I like, I love the, the marriage analogy because when we think of us, we know of all kinds of broken engagements. Um, it just doesn't always make it to the end, does it? But when the Father himself makes a promise and puts down a payment, he's not backing out of that thing. This is ultimately seen and, and realized, actualized in the fact that the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence within us. It is the wedding ring on our life that this relationship, it's, it's going somewhere. <laughs> it's It's happening. The Spirit's mark upon us shows us not only to be in Christ, but to be in Him forever. And thus, our relationship with the triune God, now you see it all come together, comes from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Do you see the shape of this? See the shape of the relationship? I've mentioned this in every message, but let me try to bring it all together now, here at this moment, as we turn the corner. Salvation, or our relationship with God, is from the Father. He planned it. It is through the Son, He provided it. It is by the Spirit, He applied it. That's what the relationship looks like. From the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. You see the triune shape of this relationship. How then... Do we express our relationship with God? Here's where we move to the practical. How then do we relate to the triune God? If you're taking notes, you could write it down this way. It's pretty simple. You could guess it. By the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. If it comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, it goes back to Him by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. Now, you could say, well, Justin, that's a quite a logical leap. I want you to know, friends, that is not a logical leap. That's what Paul himself says as he gets to more practical issues in Ephesians 2, verse 18. Look at it together. It should be on the same page. Ephesians 2, 18. 
He's talking about our relationship with God, and in it he's particularly pointing out the reconciliation that Christ made on the cross. He's the subject of this. And as you get down to verse 18, it says, For through him, that is Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. (laughs) I'm not making this up. I don't just have like some unusual love for prepositions. Prepositions convey relationship, and these are divinely inspired prepositions. It says that the relationship is conveyed by the Spirit through the Son to whom? The Father. That's how it works. (laughs) One noted, access to God is ultimately access to the Father. And this is through Christ, the one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. It is the ground of the church's worship by the Holy Spirit through Christ to the Father. And this encompasses our entire response to and relationship with God from worship through the whole field of Christian experience. Everything happens this way. Thus we're invited to relate with the grain as opposed to against it. One teacher has provided this helpful analogy. I'll share it with you. Since we have been in a more doctrinal section, let me give your minds a moment to breathe with an illustration. Wood, as you all know, well, should know, has a grain to it. If you've ever tried to sand wood before, you know that there's a right and a wrong way to do it. You don't just sand. (laughs) The long fibers that make up the piece of wood all run in one direction, and a wise woodworker will always find the direction of that grain before starting the work. Paper. Paper also has a grain to it. That's why you can tear straight lines down a sheet of paper, but you can't ever tear them sideways all that well. It's the grain of the wood and the paper. Cat hair (laughs) also has a grain to it. I would never touch one of the beasts. (laughs) But if I was forced to, I would know that you rub the cat from head to tail and not tail to head. (laughs) There's a certain direction in which things work. God made it that way. So when you work with the grain of the wood or the paper or the cat, things go well. When you work against it, either because you're oblivious to the structural forces involved or because you consider them negligible, things don't go as well. And that's why we talk about things going with the grain or against it. Now, if this is true of objects and soulless felines, is this not much more true of our relationships with individuals? Has God not made our relationships to work in a certain way? Do we not figure out typically how people work, how God made them, and then we figure out how best to relate to them? Maybe one of the clearest examples of this is in a marriage relationship. (laughs) Whether you're Uh, saved or unsaved, couples still read books like John Gray's uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, or Gary Chapman's The Five Love Languages, because they realize, like, something's not connecting. (laughs) I think I'm going against the grain on this one. And then you realize, oh, (laughs) she doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. Why? Why do we get to know them? Why do we get to know how they relate to us? Because we want to know, if we care, how to relate to them. The same is true of children. Every one of our children are different. And we think that what worked with the last one is going to work with the next one. And you're living in -in pie-in-the-sky realities if you think that's the way kids work. They they have a grain. (laughs) And and it's different for each one. 
and we learn what that relationship is because we love them and we care for them. And because once we figure out how they relate to us, we then figure out how to relate to them. If this is true in the natural world and in the relational world, why would it not be true in the spiritual world? Is there not a certain shape to our relationship with God and a certain way in which we relate back to Him? This is what Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 are ultimately teaching us. God relates to us in a certain way, and we too then relate to Him in a certain way. So what are some of the practical ways in which this shape, this Trinitarian shape of our relationship with God work themselves out? You've been dying for something real that you can put your teeth into. Here you go, here's the first one. It's your identification of God. That is extremely important to any relationship, that you identify who you're talking about. While there is only one God, we do well to identify his three persons appropriately. He is God, and he has specifically revealed himself to us as God in three persons. And I say this carefully, and I say it kindly, but candidly. To blatantly disregard the persons of the Trinity is blasphemy. To blatantly disregard the persons of the Trinity is blasphemy. This is what I would call a hard misidentification of God compared with a soft. I'll talk about a soft in a moment. Hard misidentification. When one denies the Trinitarian shape of our relationship with God, he or she proves that they have no relationship with God at all. (laughs) Identifying God as triune is the watershed moment at which we part company with the world's religions. You understand this? Like, I don't know if it gets any more practical than this. Like, this is what makes us unique, who we worship. Like, do you worship, in the Old Testament sense, Baal, or do you worship Yahweh? <laughs> do you worship Jesus, or do you worship nature? I mean, God has revealed himself as triune, and if you deny hardly that he is triune, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. This is where cults get it wrong, like Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is why the early church, and I've referenced this earlier, but I want you to get it again. The early church in the 6th century adopted the Athanasian Creed. And listen to these words. They're so stern. I mean, this is a group of pastors that got together and they said, all right, we want to all come together and agree that this is what we agree upon. And this is what they came up with to, to make sure that everyone was in line. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold to what I would call the universally accepted faith. Which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. All right, do you get what they're talking about? If you don't believe what we're about to say, (laughs) you will go to hell. And the universally accepted faith is this. Now, how would you fill in the blank here? Here's how they do it. That we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. They said, if you don't believe this, you're not in the faith. So does our relationship to the triune God matter? Does the identification of the triune God matter? Let me make it a little more real. This week I was listening to an interview with Ligon Duncan. He's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary. Brilliant man. And someone asked him in this interview is, this was the question, is the Trinity central or essential to the gospel? To which he responded, and I thought this was a great answer. It's sort of like asking, is your wife essential to marriage? 
when you ask, is God essential to the gospel, that's ridiculous because the gospel is all about who our God is. <laughs> that's a hard misidentification. Make sure you don't make that mistake. You may not be worshiping the triune God. There's a soft misidentification as well. What I mean by that is that sometimes, and I need to say this because we have so many new believers with us, we inadvertently confuse the members of the Trinity, and I would just encourage you, that, that go ahead and say, we do well to learn who God is and what he has done so that we can better relate to him. I just want you to, to get, like, when we're talking Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not just throwing around different words for the sake of variety. Th- there are certain things that you need to grasp if you care to love and know and communicate with God accurately. Here's common misconceptions that need to be avoided. Some of you have grown up in church a long time, would never say these things, but some of you have probably said these and didn't even know they were wrong. Correction one. Uh, the Father did not die on the cross. Okay? Uh, correction two. Jesus did not send his only son. Uh, correction three. The Holy Spirit didn't ascend into heaven, nor does he sit at the Father's right hand. Do you, do you understand that, that certain persons of the Trinity were responsible primarily for certain things? Now, I'm not saying that you're not saved if you've ever said one of those things. I'm just saying you need to be careful about who you're identifying. Can I just ask you a personal question? How many of you have ever had, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you have ever had someone get your name wrong? Anybody? All right, yeah. I get called Josh all the time. I mean, my brother's name is Josh, but even when I was in California and nobody knew my brother, they'd call me Josh. All right, look, you do that to me one time. Okay, that's cool. I get it. Like, it's a J. Um, even though there are 5,000 other J names you could have chosen, you picked that one. Cool. It's a mistake. And so I'll tell the person, Hey, my name's Justin, actually. You know, just letting you know. All right, so I can make the correction, and then the second time, hey, what's up, Josh? Uh, you know, I, maybe you didn't remember <laughs> last time I told you, but my name's actually Justin. You know, I let that one go, right? I, I mean, it's two strikes. Third time? Really? Now, this isn't about me or how I would respond in that situation, but I would say that any time that we've experienced that, you know, the first time we kind of let it go, the second time we're like, what? But by the time you get to the third or fourth, like, mispronunciation or <laughs> misuse of your name or somebody, like, just gets it wrong, you think, man, this, this person just really doesn't care, do they? <laughs> this is the fundamental, like, aspect of our identity. This is, like, the one thing that separates us from the dude beside us. Like, this is my name. This is what my parents gave me. Like, you can at least just remember this one word so that we can communicate properly? Now, I'm not saying that the divine Godhead would be as petty as we are as human beings. Forget God's response for a moment. Think of yours. How much do you not care if you would be so sloppy as to not think intentionally about who you're praying to or who you're worshiping or who you're referencing or who you're reading about? That's why the whole sermon has been themed around relationship and identification matters to a relationship. I don't call that woman Teresa. I dare not. (laughs) (laughs) Names matter. And if God matters, we should care about his name. There's another aspect in which the Trinity matters, and that is in communication. Not just identification, but communication. Assuming, again, relationship with the triune God, we naturally want to communicate with him. 
So the most practical expressions of a relationship with God is speaking to him in prayer, right? (laughs) It doesn't take uh, someone trained in behavioral psychology to recognize that a healthy relationship involves frequent and clear communication. So here's the pop theology quiz for everyone attending today. When we start thinking about the Trinity in prayer, to whom do we pray? God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all of the above? (laughs) Here's the theologically correct answer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. I mean, that's, that's the way that we've been taught in Scripture. I mean, Jesus himself told us in Matthew 6, 9, when the disciples said, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He modeled that for us. And then even he himself, in that John 14 passage that we referenced earlier, would teach us to ask things in his name, John 14, verses 13 to 14. He says, so when you ask the Father, ask in my name. And then finally... Romans 8.26 reveals that the Spirit is the one who assists us in our prayers. The reason why the things work, (laughs) the reason why we even know what to pray, and even when we pray the wrong things, the Spirit fixes it. (laughs) We're doing it by the Spirit. Now, I don't want anybody to freak out, you know, like if you taught your kids to pray at the dinner table, dear Jesus, like you didn't commit any rank heresy. (laughs) There's nothing in the Bible that forbids praying to the Son. And there's nothing in the Bible that forbids praying to the Spirit. As a matter of fact, Stephen, when he was being persecuted to death in the book of Acts, prays to Jesus. It's the only example we have of that that I know of in the New Testament. There are no instances of anyone praying to the Holy Spirit, but I'm not going to say that it is rank heresy or wrong because the Scriptures don't expressly forbid it. But that being said, there is a general shape in in which the relationship should go. So the general principle is that prayer is directed to the Father, it is enabled by the Son, and it is assisted by the Spirit. An illustration may help here, because someone was asking me about this a few weeks ago. Uh, Last November, I had the opportunity, as you know, to teach uh, expository preaching to house church pastors in Eastern Asia. It was a great experience, uh, but as you can imagine, there was a challenge. challenge is what? Language. (laughs) All right, so in that culture in which I know zero Chinese, I actually looked into it, Rob, I tried, and I was like, no, not worth it. (laughs) I don't have enough time. (laughs) I've got other stuff to do. It's one of the most difficult languages on the planet to master. So I said, all right, I'm going to have to work through a translator. And here's how a translator works. If you've never done it, if you've ever done it for business, it's an interesting thing. You're speaking to your audience through a translator. That's just kind of the way it works. You don't talk to the translator. You speak to the audience. Actually, things get kind of weird if you talk to the translator because then he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> like he gets confused. But the general orientation is to and through. But what I'm trying to communicate to you is you can talk to Jesus. Yeah, of course. But the the general pattern for us is two. We're speaking to our Heavenly Father, and Christ has made that possible. And the Spirit is the one that's delivering that and enabling that and assisting that. Let me ask you some practical questions. Do you speak, when you pray, do you speak to Him as a loving Father? Or as an ominous God? (laughs) Distant, cold, impersonal. 
He wants you to address him as father because he knows that you are his child, adopted into his family, and you have needs that he himself wants to take care of. He has promised to take care of them. That is the attitude, the approach that we take in prayer. It is to a father. Do you do it through the son? I'm not saying, do you say in Jesus' name? I don't think there's a person in the room that claims to be a Christian that doesn't close their prayers in Jesus' name. It's kind of hollow, though, if that's all that you do. You know you can actually pray in Jesus' name without ever saying in Jesus' name? (laughs) When you say that something is done in Jesus' name, you're saying that it's done on his authority. It's not about the words as much as it is the action itself, because... You're coming to him saying, I have full right to address you as Father on behalf of what Jesus has done for me. John Calvin said it this way. I think this is beautiful. He says, when we pray to the Father, we pray in the voice of Jesus. (laughs) He hears his Son's voice because we're in Christ. I know some of you maybe think prayer is rather impotent and pointless and powerful, you know, unpowerful, because who am I? <laughs> who am I? I'll tell you who you are. You're in Christ. And on account of that, you can ask for whatever you need. You may boldly approach the throne of grace. That's what it means to pray through the Son. And then lastly, we pray by the Spirit. Sometimes we, it's, it's easy for us to think that, that effective prayer is for the spiritual people, but my friends, you are indeed spiritual. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And sometimes you may be afraid to pray out loud because people could misinterpret your prayers or, or think that you're not saying the right words or critique them or whatever. I want you to know that it doesn't matter what you pray out loud or in your heart because the Spirit is the one, first, compelling you to pray. You'd never have that desire if the Spirit didn't indwell you. And secondly, He's the one that empowers that prayer. He gets it off the ground. You, you may feel like when you pray on a Monday morning especially, man, this one didn't make it to the ceiling. <laughs> I assure you it made it much farther than that because the Spirit was the one empowering and enabling that prayer. Maybe the reason why we don't pray and we don't like to pray or we don't feel comfortable praying is because we don't understand the nature of our triune relationship with God. Identification. Communication. And then lastly, adoration. Christian worship must focus on that which is distinctive to Christianity. When I'm talking about adoration, I'm talking about when we give worship and praise to God. Some of you, when you hear the word worship, all you think of is singing. Please understand that, indeed, singing includes worship, but that is not just worship. We worship individually. We worship corporately in this setting. This is our worship service. I'm worshiping right now as I'm pointing out God to you. You're worshiping as you understand and appreciate who God is. This is worship. But we need to be careful in our worship that we're actually worshiping God as he has revealed himself, especially in our corporate worship. So often our our worship is so vague, it's so bland. Our, our, Our expressions of praise could be utilized by the general religions of the world. I mean, if the way that you praise God could be 
done by a Muslim or a Unitarian or a Hindu, you're probably not offering distinctly Christian worship. And I say that this is especially true of music because that tends to reflect the words that we borrow for worship most often. I remember probably, I don't know, seven, six years ago, I was at a camp in central California. We were there for a family camp, but there was a teen camp going on at the same time, and I'm just naturally a curious person. And so I decided to kind of roam off and find out, like, what was being preached at this camp. So I went into the, the worship center or whatever they called it. It was just this ominously dark room uh, with a bunch of lights on the stage. And it looks like a theater, kind of. It was an interesting setup. And uh, so I was getting ready for, you know, like the preaching. And, of course, you can't preach for some reason without music. So the music had to start beforehand. And then they, they start to sing. And the, the songs I had, I had never heard before. There's one that I had recognized. Um, but I, they just seemed so, and pardon the word here, sappy. They were what a friend of mine would later call boyfriend Jesus songs. People were talking about like they were in love with something, but you couldn't tell. I'll put it this way. The songs that they were singing, if I were to hear them at the mall, I would not know that they were talking about Jesus. I would think that somebody's writing about their boyfriend. I mean, here's one. This is a popular one. And if this is your favorite song, please don't send me an angry letter. I'm just pointing out. I'm just pointing out how vague our worship can be from sometime. sometime. A 2005 song. Oh, how he loves us, John Mark McMillan. Listen to the words. Again, don't think church, just think words. He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, and I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me, and oh, how he loves us. Oh, oh, how he loves us. How he loves us, oh, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, and I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and his mercy, when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. I don't have a clue who he's singing to. All I'm trying to point out is that general theistic worship is defective worship. We're not just worshiping God out there somewhere. We are worshiping the God that has revealed himself in the scriptures. And in the context of a service like this where we've expressly already said we are worshiping the triune God, it is okay to sing a song just about the Father or just about the Spirit or just about the Son. But let us be careful to not just sing things that could be sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. That is not the worship. Here's the question for you. Are you in love with God generally or the triune God specifically? Robert Leatham, who's the foremost scholar on the Trinity, summarized our adoration this way toward the members of the Trinity. I find this helpful. It's a few sentences. Hang with me. The nature of our response and worship is to be shaped by the reality of the one we worship. We worship the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, who planned our salvation from eternity, who sent his Son into the world and gave him up for us. We worship the Son in filial relation with the Father, who willingly for us in our salvation was made flesh, who submitted himself to a life in a fallen world, who trod a path of loneliness, temptation, and suffering, leading to the cruel death of the cross. We worship him for his glorious resurrection, for his ascension to the right hand of the Father, for his continual intercession for us, and for his future return to judge the living and the dead and to complete our salvation. 
we worship the Holy Spirit who gives life and breath to all, who grants us the gift of faith, who sustains us through the difficulties of life as Christians in a world set in hostility to God, who testifies to the Son. And as we said a few weeks ago, as we turn our attention to the three, we're inextricably drawn back to the one. This is triune worship. I'm happy to say here that we at Faith Bible are regularly engaging in triune worship. Did you notice the pattern this morning? Did you hear it in the song? Every song that we have sang to this point and every one we will sing to follow will focus on all three members of the Trinity. And you didn't think anything of it. Why? Because this is just how it works. (laughs) But we need to be careful to protect that. We need to practice that not only here, but personally. We are worshiping the triune God. So does the Trinity really matter? Is it possible for us to be practical and to live in light of the the Trinity? I mean, is this even a big deal? Let's return to our opening consideration. Are, Are we going to end up with Kant or Sanders or somewhere in between? Remember Kant, his own words, The doctrine of the Trinity, taken literally, has no practical relevance at all, even if we think we understand. All right, then we've got Sanders. Nothing we do as evangelicals makes sense if it's divorced from a strong and experiential doctrine of the Trinity. All right, then we've got the one in the middle. It's important, but it's not all that important. Now, I want you to think, because I I think that most of you you are probably going to be like, no, I'm not with with Kant, unless you're just not a believer. But I think that the middle section here could be a compelling option for many of you. Like, I, I, I'm not seeing all of its relevance, or at least not before or now. Listen, if I understand Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and Ephesians 2, 18 at all, our only answer is over here. It is the most important thing that we can consider. It is God. Sanders goes on to explain his answer. Assuming the Trinity is irrelevant can only come from a faulty idea of what counts as relevant. The doctrine of the Trinity is a teaching about who God is based on the gospel and according to the Bible. Anybody who nods their head to these claims and then goes on to ask, but why does it matter, has a dubious grasp of the nature of theology, the character of the gospel, and the purpose of the Bible. If we believe that a relationship with God is the most significant aspect of our existence, knowing what God is like ought to be supremely relevant to us. Why know God is triune? Because it teaches us who He is and how we can relate to Him. Why does the Trinity matter? Because God matters. This is the God in whom alone we trust. This is the God to whom alone we pray. This is the God to whom alone we worship. Does the Trinity matter? Yes, because our relationship with God matters. Your relationship with God, by the way, matters for whatever's going to happen to you this year in this new school. And your relationship to God matters for whatever it is that you're going on, it's going on for you right now in work. And it matters in whatever relationship you have. I don't care if it's marriage, kids, or an ordinary neighbor. God matters to that. Your health that you're so concerned about It matters when you have a relationship with God. And may I say, on the other end, if you don't have a relationship with God, none of it matters. 
There are just certain times in the rhythm and flow of life where my relationship with my wife isn't as it needs to be. And it doesn't matter how well I'm clicking with everybody else here at this church <laughs> or how much everybody thinks I've got it all together. It's an emotional hell on earth when the person that I'm the closest to isn't in fellowship with me. Typically my own doing. If that's true, <laughs> of like human limited relationships, I mean, this thing ends for us when one of us die. How much more does a relationship with the eternal God matter? You know what my prayer is? My vision, like the, this thing that I... I just like, I, I pray and I look to this all the time. I pray that we are a people who are enamored with not only who God is, but how we relate to Him. I don't want it to be dry and dusty and cold. I want it to be warm and passionate and real. But at the same time, I don't want it just to be sappy and shallow. I want it to be accurate and factual and biblical. And to get the two of those things together, we look to the Scriptures and learn how to relate to our triune God. I, I have to ask this. I can't assume this. Do you even have a relationship with the triune God? I, I know that many of you do. I, I hear you talk about it. You affirm it. But you could be here today and not. You know, I've talked about all what God does. I didn't even highlight it till now on purpose. How do you get in on this? <laughs> What's your response? We know what the Father did and the Son did and the Spirit did, but... What's the human entry point, if you will, to this? Well, buried in those series of prepositions in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that this relationship is extended when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You want in? <laughs> you want this relationship? My, my simple question is, have you believed in him like you would believe in a parachute falling from an airplane? Are you trusting in him? Have you clung to him? Are you depending upon him alone? And if you've never done that and you don't know what that means or you have questions about that, please talk to me. Talk to one of these believers at the church because this is the most important thing you've got going on ever. If you're here today and say, you know, I already have a relationship with him. I have believed in him continue to enjoy that relationship there you go there's your practical application walk out this week and go and enjoy that relationship it's not the chief end of man as we learned last week or two weeks ago to glorify God and enjoy him forever friends enjoy him enjoy him by the spirit through the son to the father enjoy him in prayer enjoy him in praise Let's do both of those now. I'll lead us in prayer, and then let's sing some final songs of praise to our God. Father in heaven, we bless your name for the spiritual blessings, the eternal relationship that you have secured for us through Christ by the Spirit. Inform our minds, or inflame our hearts, activate our wills, May this relationship with you or translate or into our relationships with others. May the lost see the joy that we have and the confidence that we have because of what you have secured for us. May our family members and friends see the beneficence and the kindness 
or of you in us to them. Or thank you. Thank you for, yes, common blessings, but even better, special blessings. This relationship that we enjoy. Your Spirit has prompted us to pray this way. We confidently ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.